This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Read by Elizabeth Clett. Chapter 14 The Meeting. My beloved child, he resumed, was now growing rapidly worse. The physician who attended her had failed to produce the slightest impression on her disease, for such I then supposed it to be. He saw my alarm, and suggested a consultation. I called in an abler physician from Graz. Several days elapsed before he arrived. He was a good and pious as well as a learned man. Having seen my poor ward together, they withdrew to my library to confer and discuss. I, from the adjoining room, where I awaited their summons, heard these two gentlemen's voices raised in something sharper than a strictly philosophical discussion. I knocked at the door and entered. I found the old physician from Graz maintaining his theory. His rival was combating it with undisguised ridicule, accompanied with bursts of laughter. This unseemly manifestation subsided, and the altercation ended on my entrance. "'Sir,' said my first physician, "'my learned brother seems to think that you want a conjurer, and not a doctor.' "'Pardon me,' said the old physician from Graz, looking displeased. "'I shall state my own view of the case in my own way another time. I grieve, Monsieur le Général, that by my skill and science I can be of no use.' Before I go, I shall do myself the honour to suggest something to you." He seemed thoughtful, and sat down at a table and began to write. Profoundly disappointed, I made my bow, and as I turned to go the other doctor pointed over his shoulder to his companion, who was writing, and then with a shrug significantly touched his forehead. This consultation, then, left me precisely where I was. I walked out into the grounds, all but distracted. The doctor from Graz in ten or fifteen minutes overtook me. He apologized for having followed me, but said that he could not conscientiously take his leave without a few words more. He told me that he could not be mistaken. No natural disease exhibited the same symptoms, and that death was already very near. There remained, however, a day, or possibly two, of life. If the fatal seizure were at once arrested, with great care and skill her strength might possibly return. But all hung now upon the confines of the irrevocable. One more assault might extinguish the last spark of vitality, which is, every moment, ready to die. "'And what is the nature of the seizure you speak of?' I entreated. "'I have stated all fully in this note.' which I place in your hands upon the distinct condition that you send for the nearest clergyman, and open my letter in his presence, and on no account read it till he is with you. You would despise it else, and it is a matter of life and death. Should the priest fail you, then, indeed you may read it." He asked me, before taking his leave finally, whether I would wish to see a man curiously learned upon the very subject which, after I had read his letter, would probably interest me above all others, 
and he urged me earnestly to invite him to visit him there, and so took his leave. The ecclesiastic was absent, and I read the letter by myself. At another time or in another case it might have excited my ridicule. But into what quackeries will not people rush for a last chance, where all accustomed means have failed, and the life of a beloved object is at stake? Nothing, you will say, could be more absurd than the learned man's letter. It was monstrous enough to have consigned him to a madhouse. He said that the patient was suffering from the visits of a vampire. The punctures which she described as having occurred near the throat were, he insisted, the insertion of those two long, thin, and sharp teeth, which, it is well known, are peculiar to vampires, and there could be no doubt, he added, as to the well-defined presence of the small, livid mark, which all concurred in describing as that induced by the demon's lips, and every symptom described by the sufferer was in exact conformity with those recorded in every case of a similar visitation. Being myself wholly sceptical as to the existence of any such portent as the vampire, the supernatural theory of the good doctor furnished, in my opinion, but another instance of learning and intelligence oddly associated with some one hallucination. I was so miserable, however, that rather than try nothing, I acted upon the instructions of the letter. I concealed myself in the dark dressing-room that opened upon the poor patient's room, in which a candle was burning, and watched there till she was fast asleep. I stood at the door, peeping through the small crevice, my sword laid on the table beside me, as my directions prescribed, until a little after one, I saw a large black object, very ill-defined, crawl, as it seemed to me, over the foot of the bed, and swiftly spread itself up to the poor girl's throat, where it swelled, in a moment, into a great, palpitating mass. For a few moments I had stood petrified. I now sprang forward with my sword in my hand. The black creature suddenly contracted towards the foot of the bed, glided over it, and standing on the floor about a yard below the foot of the bed, with a glare of skulking ferocity and horror fixed on me, I saw Milarka. Speculating I know not what, I struck at her instantly with my sword, but I saw her standing near the door, unscathed. Horrified, I pursued and struck again. She was gone, and my sword flew to shivers against the door. I can't describe to you all that passed on that horrible night. The whole house was up and stirring. The spectre Malarca was gone, but her victim was sinking fast, and before the morning dawned, she died. The old general was agitated. We did not speak to him. My father walked to some little distance, and began reading the inscriptions on the tombstones, and thus occupied he strolled into the door of a side-chapel to prosecute his researches. The general leaned against the wall, dried his eyes, and sighed heavily. I was relieved on hearing the voices of Carmilla and Madame, who were at that moment approaching. The voices died away. In this solitude, having just listened to so strange a story, connected as it was with the great and titled dead, whose monuments were mouldering among the dust and ivy around us, and every instant of which bore so awfully upon my own mysterious case. In this haunted spot, 
darkened by the towering foliage that rose on every side, dense and high above its noiseless walls, a horror began to steal over me, and my heart sank as I thought that my friends were, after all, not about to enter and disturb this triste and ominous scene. The old general's eyes were fixed on the ground, as he leaned with his hand upon the basement of a shattered monument. Under a narrow, arched doorway, surmounted by one of those demonical grotesques in which the cynical and ghastly fancy of old Gothic carving delights, I saw very gladly the beautiful face and figure of Carmilla entering the shadowy chapel. I was just about to rise and speak, and nodded smiling in answer to her peculiarly engaging smile, when with a cry the old man by my side caught up the woodman's hatchet and started forward. On seeing him a brutalized change came over her features. It was an instantaneous and horrible transformation, as she made a crouching step backwards. Before I could utter a scream, he struck at her with all his force, but she dived under his blow, and unscathed caught him in her tiny grasp by the wrist. He struggled for a moment to release his arm, but his hand opened, the axe fell to the ground, and the girl was gone. He staggered against the wall. His gray hair stood upon his head, and a moisture shone over his face as if he were at the point of death. The frightful scene had passed in a moment. The first thing I recollect after is Madame standing before me, and impatiently repeating again and again the question, Where is Mademoiselle Carmilla? I answered at length, I don't know. I can't tell. She went there. And I pointed to the door through which Madame had just entered. Only a minute or two since. But I have been standing there, in the passage, ever since Mademoiselle Carmilla entered, and she did not return. She then began to call, Carmilla, through every door and passage and from the windows, but no answer came. She called herself Carmilla, asked the general, still agitated. Carmilla, yes, I answered. Aye, he said. That is Milarca. That is the same person who long ago was called Mercalla, Countess Karnstein. Depart from this accursed ground, my poor child, as quickly as you can. Drive to the clergyman's house, and stay there till we come. Be gone! May you never behold Carmilla more. You will not find her here. End of chapter 14